The Energy Gang is sponsored by Renasola, a top manufacturer and supplier of clean energy equipment, including solar modules, inverters, energy storage, and efficient lighting. With 40 worldwide subsidiaries, the company offers one-stop shopping for all your equipment needs, with next-day delivery. You can see the entire list of Renasola's offerings available coast-to-coast at renasola.us. For the week of June 11, 2015, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. In Washington, D.C., I'm Stephen Lacey, a senior editor with Green Tech Media. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. In this edition, we are joined by one of the architects behind New York's planned energy market transformation. Then, we'll talk about a new EPA study concluding that fracking is not polluting America's water in a systematic way. And we'll end by asking if Australia overpaid for its solar boom. We will, of course, tell you something you do not know to close the show. And to open, I'll bring in some people you do know very well. It's uh, my co-hosts, Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. Catherine's in Washington, D.C., and she is a partner with 38 North Solutions. How are you? I'm doing great, although I will say that my family is not getting a lot of sleep because uh, four children were not enough. We went out and got adopted a rescue puppy over the weekend. Oh, really? What kind? She's a hound mix. She really looks like a small black lab. So there was a black lab somewhere on that farm. What's her story? The, The farm dog had a litter that they just couldn't keep, and so they went through a rescue agency. It was really great. All right. Rescues all the way. Definitely the best way to get an animal. Yeah. In New York, it is Jigger Shaw, the president of Generate Capital. Have you rescued anything lately, sir? No, but I am a big proponent of Bob Barker and the, the spade and neuter your pets. Is he part of like a big campaign on spaying and neutering pets? Don't you remember? That's no. his, his whole thing. Price is right. Every single Price is right episode, he'd say, spay and neuter your pets. And then Drew Carey kept it going because it was such a great cause. Well, shows that I'm not a big Price is right fan. Mm. <laughs> Let's just say Alex. Penny the puppy will never have puppies. <laughs> <laughs> Let's turn to our guest now, who is also based in New York. He's very well known to the energy gang, uh, and he's a familiar name to anyone who's been following New York's attempts to overhaul its electricity system and attract new clean energy companies. It is Richard Kaufman, the chairman of energy and finance for the state of New York, also known as the state's energy czar, which is a much cooler name, in my opinion. Richard, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Um, so can you tell people what you do exactly? You, you have a lot of roles wrapped up into one in that energy czar name. What does being New York's energy czar actually mean? Well, I hope it works out better for this czar than the other czars, although I'm sure uh, everybody can come and pick apart my bones. In fact, they've already begun to start doing that. So what... <laughs> What being energy czar means is is really all the principal energy authorities in the state uh, come under my portfolio. So that includes the Department of Public Service, uh, the uh, NYSERDA, the Long Island Power Authority, and the New York Power Authority. And so the benefit we have uh, is to develop and implement an integrated energy policy. And for all of us that have been uh, frustrated for years at both uh, state and at federal levels, how come we don't have energy policy? Uh, it's been because often the 
the entities are diffuse uh, and everybody's in their own silo and nobody can bring things together in a in a single integrated way and that's what we're trying to do here. Yeah, well I think that's what is very unique to New York. So while you see on a regulatory or a policy level people sort of tackling these issues in siloed ways. New York is really trying to bring it all together, and and we'll talk about what that means. Um, But first, I'd like to start off with more of a conceptual framework of what you're trying to do by reforming your energy market, Um, and then we can probably talk specifics from there. So you say you're an advocate for creating markets, not programs. And this is really evident in the way that the reforming the energy vision plan is unfolding, which is just trying to establish – entirely new rate structures and performance goals for utilities to build a new market around distributed energy. And when we talked last fall, you said to me, quote, I've been around long enough to know that when government steps in too deeply, that's not necessarily a good thing for the private sector. Um, But this overhaul is a government-led initiative. I'm just wondering how you use your authority to help foster change, but do it in a way that's market-oriented and flexible. Let me just back up for a second and and really try to talk about the the problem that we're trying to solve. So the problem we're trying to solve is that that we we all know what the grid is supposed to look like. Should be an integrated network thing uh, that has the benefits of central station generation and transmission with the flexibility and innovation of distributed resources. Uh, that is what the IT system is. And the mainframe, and we have uh, the benefits of uh, smartphones and PCs. That's really what the grid ought to be. And I think it's not a question of the technology. It's the fact that we have a uh, regulatory structure uh, and policies that aren't building that system. And so it's a system which is capital inefficient, and it is not leading to a system which builds more, which is built around the customer. And in every other industry, uh, the, the industries have been re-engineered to build things around the customer, and we still call customers ratepayers. That's what we're trying to accomplish with uh, all the things that we're doing, and we're trying to do it in a way where we can change market rules uh, to, to enable capital to flow uh, 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 appropriately in a way which is uh, solution and and technology agnostic and it's market markets where market makes sense and they're going to be some segments of the community that are are not going to be part of of markets and we don't want to leave those parts of the community behind we don't want to create the equivalent of a digital divide so it's interesting because if you look at the difference between New York and California, because California has a similar setup with its own ISO, and you know every they can, they can essentially do everything from their one state as well. They're they're they do programs, they do mandates. So they have mandates for renewables, mandates for efficiency, and then they have a mandate for storage because they've created this giant duck. So they have they operate on the basis of mandates. And you've just said. Let's try not to do that. Let's do. Let's try to use the market. So it strikes me that New York is really acting like an investor rather than uh, like a command and control unit. So it would it would be really interesting to hear how you see it as you you have been an investor in the past and we work together at Good Energies. Um, 
but it, just sort of how do you bring that into the way New York is operating? All right. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about markets, and 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 also I don't want to uh, I don't want to be critical of California. Certainly, relative to uh, relative to New York, California is the leader in terms of what it's done uh, in terms of uh, deployment of renewable energy and energy efficiency. So we're just uh, relative to California, just getting started. I'll give you I'll give you I'll give you an example of something that may highlight the difference between a the difference between a program uh, and a mandate and something which could have more value and accomplish more. So uh, there's an unnamed utility that is offering $50 to customers if they buy a, a new refrigerator and they'll take away the old refrigerator. And so that $50 is not coming from that utility's shareholders. That's coming from a from ratepayer collections. In other words, there are little levies that are collected from ratepayers that uh, go to fund programs. Some of the programs are are, are supported by uh, are are run by utilities, and some are run by NYSERDA. And so the theory is that we uh, it would be a good thing to have more energy efficiency. So let's collect money from ratepayers, and we'll have uh, rebates for things like refrigerators. But realistically. How much are we doing? How many refrigerators do we honestly think are going to be turned in? It's not a business. And so the idea of what we're doing is to try to figure out how could we turn something like appliances and energy efficiency into a business for utility? Because, in fact, we could imagine that. And the way that we can imagine that, and that actually could happen today if somebody wanted to bring it forward, uh, in a demonstration project, but we could imagine that there's a just in the same way that a that the solar industry, uh, residential solar industry, uh, got off the ground by having customers enter into contracts to to lease their their solar systems at a slight discount to the current electricity to the current electricity bill. Imagine the same thing that uh, an appliance provider said. How about uh, leasing new appliances at 5% less in your electric bill. Well, the, you know, the interesting thing about what you're talking about, Richard, is I think there's two there's two pieces here. One is that, you know, NYSERDA in particular has been providing free money for a very long time. And so one of the things is how do we actually get these rebate programs to actually, you know, perform their function, which is to not continually, you know, provide rebates forever, but actually lead people to sustainable solutions where the market can take over. But the second piece is actually how do we force the utilities to actually value, whether it's refrigerators that have the ability to do demand response or refrigerators that can help, um, you know, offset uh, investments in distribution substations as opposed to, you know, um, and how do they get credit for that? Um, you know, I mean, I, you know, I'd, I'd love to, you know, hear your thoughts about, you know, how you guys are going from NYSERDA to the Green Bank to fully functioning markets. So, so there are a lot of moving pieces here. What do you worry about most? What, what's the hardest part of all this, of overhauling the energy system in such a systematic way and doing it across so many different agencies and with so many different utility stakeholders and, and vendors? Like, this is uh, extraordinarily complicated, and it sounds very nice on paper, but when you actually 
implement this stuff? What what is hardest? What's the hardest piece for you? Well, the hardest piece really is this cultural change, and it's a cultural change that has three legs. It's it's easy to say, well, utilities, uh, the business model needs to change. Uh, they've been their compensation arrangement relates to how much capital they put in the ground. They're resistant. It's, it's easy to kind of go there. Uh, and it's true that utilities do need to change their business model. They do need to change. It's a big cultural change. But it is also true that third-party service providers also need to change. Uh, they Many of them have relied, for example, on grants. Uh, they, to Catherine's point earlier, you know, they'd love to have a battery program. They'd love to have a fuel cell program. Everybody would like to have a program for their own, for themselves. And they are not, they don't always embrace the idea of things being uh, uh, technology agnostic. Uh, when we talk to third-party providers about other ways in which uh, government can help in terms of animating markets, uh, they often return to the idea of getting a grant, and, and that's not a scalable model either. And then from a regulatory and government standpoint, we have to change too, because uh, what if we are able to turn, back to the refrigerator example, able to turn uh, energy efficiency uh, into a business? Well, that changes the role of the regulator significantly, because the regulator is now, not now in the business of evaluating the benefit cost of ratepayer funds, because it's a business. So it doesn't need to play that role anymore. And, but we need to come up with very specific ideas, and it's not going to be government that's going to do it. It's going to be the private sector that needs to come up with these ideas of how we can reduce customer bills and change the utility models involving third parties. Richard Kaufman is the chairman of Energy and Finance for the state of New York, also known as the state's energy czar. Richard, thanks for joining us. Appreciate the the conversation, and good luck with everything there in New York. Thanks again for including me. Okay, a little break here to hear more about our podcast sponsor, Renesola. Renesola has been producing monocrystalline wafers since 2005 and has been manufacturing solar cells and modules since 2008. Uh, The company also manufactures and distributes inverters, LED lights, batteries, and mounting accessories, and it puts all these products together into a bundled solution for solar installers. Think about the savings in procurement and shipping costs you could realize by investing in Renesola's bundled offerings for residential systems. And the time that you could save is enormous as well. Renesola has coast-to-coast warehouses across the U.S. and 40 worldwide subsidiaries. That means the products you need for your next project will get delivered to you the next day. Start your painless procurement at renesola.us. One thing left out of New York's energy transformation is natural gas, the drilling part at least. State officials recently banned fracking in the state, citing water and air pollution as major factors. But how bad is water pollution from fracking? A draft study from the Environmental Protection Agency concludes that it's not as widespread as opponents claim. According to the new study, which looked at all available literature, on water impacts, which um, are admittedly limited in some areas, the EPA found, quote, uh, no evidence that these mechanisms have led to widespread systematic impacts on drinking water resources in the United States. Oil and gas advocates say the study proves that fracking is safe. Environmental groups opposed to the practice say the study was limited and backward looking. So does this change the debate in any way over fracking? 
Um, Catherine, what, what did you think about the study? Did you read through it? And, and of course, there were lots of reactions. So how did you parse through the reaction? Yeah, I mean, it totally depends on how you read it and what you read of it. So um, certainly the question was, were there widespread systemic impacts on drinking water resources? And, and that those were not found. But it also showed that, as you say, there was a lack of data because there were a lot of companies that wouldn't allow for pre and post well you know, fracking measurements of water. So they weren't able to collect a lot of that. And, you know, there were a lot of other things where water withdrawals in times of low water availability, spills of fracking fluids, fracturing, fracturing directly into underground drinking water resources, below ground migration of liquids and wastewater. There were a lot of things that they couldn't measure and that they, so, so the, it sort of depends on how you ask the question. Uh, one of the things is that EPA actually the Safe Drinking Water Act cannot regulate fracking. <laughs> there is an exclusion in the legislation. So um, they can study it, they can look at what all the impacts are, but they can't regulate it. This is really the most comprehensive study we've seen yet, looking at all the analysis from both industry data and the other independent scientific reports. Um, but the EPA does note in most of its areas of study that uh, the data still is very limited, and they are relying on a lot of industry reporting. So No, but just to be clear, I mean, the Obama administration lied in this press release. In what way? I mean, if you read the report, it makes it very clear that there's been a lot of issues with fracking, right? I mean, the EPA did exactly the same thing with the Dimmick report, where actually when you read the report, it said yes, the EPA actually wrote letters to all of the people in Dimmick and said, please don't drink your water. We think it's polluted. Well, the press release said nothing is wrong with Dimmick water. The same thing happened here. The press release said fracking is safe because the Obama administration wanted to appease the oil and gas industry. When you read the report, it's like, actually, we're really worried about fracking and we're going to spend a lot more money on studying this problem because we think there's actually problems. Yeah, they, they really did call out a lot of dangers and a lot of potential places for dangers. So not only are there were there a lot of dangers listed all through the process, Stephen, as you mentioned, but also this is very locational. So it kind of depends on where you're doing this. And they, you know, they, they took every all the information that they could, but this sort of leads us to, all right, well then how do we make it safer? You know, how do you, how do you get your arms around what those rules could be? And because they're not even legislatively allowed to regulate under the Safe Drinking Water Act, we have to rely on other agencies. So, for example, BLM, uh, Department of Interior, has a rule on fracking because there are over 100,000 wells on federally managed lands. Like 90% of those are from fracking. And so in 90 days which are from the rule, which is going to be June 20th, I think, the rule takes effect. And that's going to cover, I don't know, 756 million acres of land. And once you can get those guidelines in place, then maybe you can start monitoring what the industry is doing. But there are a lot of cowboys. Out. There are a lot of big companies that are trying to do it right. But there are also a lot of cowboys out there. Yeah. I, I mean, it. this is literally like the FIFA report all over again. It's like they hired a bunch of people to do it right. And then the press, the press room at EPA said, well, how do we get rid of all the bad stuff and put it literally on page 12 and like make the headline fracking? And that's not at all what the report said. The report said that there was widespread irresponsible practices and that, yes, the states have to do a better job of regulating the frackers. And if they regulated the frackers, things could be fine. So, yes, fracking can be done safely. But they made it quite clear that they did not think it was being done safely by a minority of the firms. 
I don't know what press release you were reading. I didn't see that. The EPA but. press release said fracking is safe. That's what they released to the press when the report itself did not say that. Like, I mean, I just think that the EPA report is basically saying that we have to do a much better job of regulating fracking. This is an alarm bell report. And we're saying, well, EPA sort of is kind of saying that it's fine. No, they're not saying it's fine. That's what the press office at EPA said it was fine. But the scientists who actually did the report is saying we have to regulate the crap out of fracking. Who said that? No, when it does not say that in the report. The report says that that there are irresponsible practices, that in addition to the California oil incident, the EPA reported that the study that that the dangers in fracking lie in water withdrawals in times of or in areas with low water availability. Spills of hydraulic fracturing fluids in water and produced water fracturing directly into underground drinking water resources below ground migration of liquids and gases and inadequate treatment of discharge of water. That is not like that is not them saying, oh, the fracking industry is off the hook. That's them saying, oh, my God, we have got to study this and actually regulate it. That's what they're saying, even though the press office decided to spin it in another way. Yeah, it was a messaging thing where if you say widespread systemic, it's this is very like locational. And it, it's it's just a way of using words differently to to try to convey a message differently. to right. people. So I think I think people have taken from it what they wanted to and have used some of those high level comments to try to make it sound like it. it there exactly. are any dangers. But the but the report, you're right, Jigger, does say we need to look at it a lot more closely. And unfortunately, the EPA right now doesn't really have the authority to regulate very much. They can regulate discharge water through the Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act. But and they and they can regulate those that use diesel fuels um, for fracking. But none of this. I mean, the Safe Drinking Water Act excludes underground injection of natural gas for purposes of storage and underground injection of fluids or propping agents, including hydraulic fracking operations. I think the big issue here is the limitation of the study. So they were backward looking. They looked at re- uh, data from reported spills some of it from the industry that is definitely limited and they don't have a baseline here. So they're not like testing soil. They're not testing surface water and groundwater before a fracking operation and then testing it afterward. They're using self-reported data and then other bits and pieces of scientific articles that have been uh, written over the years. So I think that the data is still very incomplete, even though this is one of the most comprehensive we've seen. And going back to your point, Jigger, I have not read the press release from the EPA, so I have not, you know, I don't, I can't comment on the disparity between their press messaging and and the report itself. And yes, the report is cautious, but this does show that like the person like Josh Fox, who basically claims that this is completely widespread. And if you watched his movie, he'd have you believe that everybody who lives near a fracking well is getting poisoned. Um, I think this, that dispels that myth and provides a little bit more scientific clarity, even though we still need to exercise caution. And there's a lot of question about, you know, regulations going into the future. Yeah, but like, but that, but, but Stephen, that is a completely like wrong-headed way of looking at this. When you, even when you think about Fox News as Varney, which Josh Fox was on, he is literally, while saying EPA thinks this is safe, is blocking fracking from his own neighborhood where he lives. Right. Anyone who's read, read this report is saying there is no way that I want fracking to happen on my land. But I love the fact that fracking is helping the U.S. become energy independent. 
I mean, I don't think that invalidates Josh Fox when a major Fox News host is actually trying to block fracking for his own neighborhood when he's promoting the EPA report. Yeah, I don't think I would take this report, uh, Stephen, as licensed to just have somebody do it in my own backyard. I mean, there's a, <laughs> I, would, I would still want the testing done. But this is a hell of a lot more data than what any of the environmental groups have at their disposal. Like, this adds to the conversation. And I think that the EPA is very clear that the environmental groups who wish you to believe that the, dam- the water contamination from fracking is widespread across the country just hasn't been measured with the data that we have yet. And well, so, I- sure, that's, you know, that's prob- people will probably be critical of me for stepping around it. But, like, I can only go with what data we have available. And at this point, this is the best set of data that we right, have. But are you suggesting, Stephen, that basically, from your point of view, we should just let the frackers do whatever the hell they want to. And then 20 years no, from now, when we did actually I say that? have the Because that's that's no, the net we've result talked about regulation tone. on this. No, we've talked about regulation numerous times, both for air pollution, and methane capture and for uh, controls over drillers underground. And of course I'm supportive of that, but I'm, I'm just trying to defend the process here and explain that the, there's a major disparity between what environmental groups are claiming and what the science currently says. I'm trying to take this report for what it is. I'm just saying that every other country in the world, whether it's Europe or China or other places are literally desperately trying to study all of the issues first before they actually frack the crap out of their country. And we're basically saying, let's frack the crap out of the country, and then 10 years from now, when we have the data, we'll see whether we made the right decision or not. So wait a second, though. The BLM rule that goes into effect June 20th, the final rule, is going to cover at least tribal and federal lands, and this is going to track a lot of data. So they're going to have to, companies have to publicly disclose all the chemicals they use. They have to track it through the website Frack Focus. They have to validate well integrity and cement barriers. They have higher standards of interim storage of waste fluids from fracking. And they have to do measures to lower cross-well contamination. So I think the BLM rule, because it's on federal lands, and there are lots of, like I said, 100,000 wells on federally managed lands, that's where you're going to get the real data. And I think we'll be able to find out a lot more because of that rule. So let's talk about our third topic now, Australian solar. Uh, We often think of Germany as the world leader in solar, but Australia has really come up as a top solar market, and one out of every six houses in the country now have PV systems on them. But at what cost? A new analysis from the Groton Institute concludes that Australia's solar boom has cost non-solar ratepayers $14 billion. The report authors do not say that Australia should stop investing in solar. Um, in fact, quite the opposite. When you read the, through the entire report and through the, op- the op-eds afterward, um, rather they're calling for fairer, leaner promotion policies and better rate structures to ensure solar is a cost-effective piece of the energy mix. The report has received a lot of pushback for its scope and its methodology, and we're going to explore both sides. So, Jigger, to you on this, you've argued that Germany overpaid for a lot of its solar by not creating volumetric reductions in the feed-in tariff price. And, you know, there are echoes of that in this report. Um, They talk about the the overpriced feed-in tariff. But there's also this cross-subsidy issue that I think is a lot stickier. 
And, um, you know, in Australia, network charges are levelized, are, are levied based on consumption. And since solar consumers use less grid electricity, they pay less for the network. And, you know, they're arguably using it just as much as backup. So it's an, an argument that sort of echoes the one that we have in the United States. But the network charges in Australia are so much higher that it, um, you know, becomes an even thornier issue. So what, what did you think of the scope of this assessment, Jigger? And like, do you think the overpayment argument was fair? Yeah, I mean, I think I mean, I think I've been very clear about the fact that these policies that actually have these fixed um, rebate programs, which don't decrease by volume, but instead decrease by evaluation, tend to be very slow at repricing the subsidies, which is what happened in Australia. And it literally because solar panels got so cheap so fast. And remember, the Australian dollar was extraordinarily strong until about two years ago. Um, and so during this whole period of time, like Australia could import solar panels at a dirt cheap price that they overpaid for solar. I mean, but the, the question becomes, is that good policy or not? Right. And that's something the Grattan Institute, which I thought did a pretty fair job, um, although they had a sensationalistic presentation. They did a pretty fair job of the report. I think, you know, if you compare this to the United States, which has, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 70 million um, single family homes and attached homes. Um, one in six would mean we'd have like 11 to 12 million solar homes, which we don't even have a million in the United States. So the question becomes, would you have rather overpaid and gotten 11 million solar homes in the United States? Or do you like the slow and steady wins the race approach that the U.S. has taken? You know, I'm more of the slow and steady wins the race, but some other people would argue for the other side. Yeah. So let's look at both of these issues. The first one with the feed-in tariff, like what is good policy in fixing that? Would it make sense to uh, retroactively reduce the feed-in tariffs like we've seen in Spain or in, in other European countries? Like that's pretty... That's never a good idea because yeah. it basically means that you're un- undermining, you know, 50 years of utility policy. And you so you want just people... accept the fact that, that there are yeah. some customers that have, you know, 60, 60 cents per kilowatt hour. Uh, you overpaid. It's what it is, right? I mean, you can certainly, you know, try to put some modest clawbacks in there, like, you know, a little bit of taxation in the outer years or something like that, that you could do that doesn't really affect the rate of return, but, you know, reflects the total amount of money that Australia is paying in the outer years. But in general, this is why I've been screaming from the rooftops that no one should copy Germany's program, that everyone should be copying California's program. Even in Ontario, where they made the same mistakes, just at a smaller volume, um, you should have volumetric reductions in subsidies, period. Well, I reached out to a friend of mine from Australia um, who works on energy storage, and he said that, you know, he said they pay less than in Australia than they do in the U.S. for energy. Their PV costs are 25 to 40% lower, and a lot of that is the soft cost, installation, labor, permitting, marketing, all that stuff. And, um, you know, he just said, look, there's not really supporting data that is conclusive about how how this spun out. Yes, they, they captured the cost, but not necessarily all the benefits. So the wholesale prices have fallen, and of course that's a problem for the generators, but it's not a problem for the consumers. You're right. You certainly can make the case that the Australian consumer has net net benefited more than the cost of the program. But you but I think you can also make the case that Australia could have achieved the same level of penetration of solar at a lower price to consumers. Right. So both things can still be true. They could have done this for half the cost. And it's also the case that the benefits in this 
um, higher cost um, way in which they deployed it, have, it still exceed the costs. So the report deals with this cost shifting issue like we're dealing with in the United States. Uh, Australia has extraordinarily high network charges based on volumetric sales. And so solar system owners use elect- less electricity and they therefore reduce those charges. But the report argues that they're using the grid during peak times and thus require the same level of grid services. So the authors are advocating for compensation rates that reflect those grid services. Definitely fair enough. Um, but you could also make the case that depending on that the rate change that solar system owners are getting unfairly penalized for the poor choices that utilities made. Like we've talked a lot on this podcast about the crazy high network charges that Australians incur. 50% of their bills in many cases um, because of the crazy overbuild of grid infrastructure over the last decade. So so like solar customers who want to make good decisions and reduce their energy use are still having to pay for the terrible investment decisions of utilities, um, even though they're reducing their consumption. I'm not saying that they don't have to pay in some way because they are using those grid services, but there's certainly a counter argument. Yeah. And this, by the way, this this penalty that you're talking about, um, Stephen, exists in the U.S. I mean, it's basically you're saying in a more straightforward fashion what Richard Kaufman was saying right in the first segment, which is that the capacity factor of the existing system is too low um, because in New York State and in California, they overpaid for the T&D infrastructure because, you know, that was sort of an easy formula by which the utilities could get a get-rich-quick scheme. And, um, and, and now they're basically using that overinvestment as a way to penalize the, the solar industry and saying, oh, you know, we paid for all this capacity and now you're not paying your fair share for it. Um, so no, I completely agree with you. But I, but I, and I think that, but I, I still think it's important for people to see the Grattan Institute report in the right light, which is that you can institute better solar policy to save ratepayers money to accomplish the same amount of solar penetration. It seemed like also, though, Jigger, you need to change the structure there because most of their existing generators and retailers are the same. So there's just not a lot of incentive to to change. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, but that goes back to what, you know, where, you know, Richard, I think, has a much broader mandate in New York around trying to do that, where in many of these countries or many of these states, you don't have that mandate. You know, each silo is so independent of each other, they don't have the ability to look across systemic changes, you know, and see how all of these individual issues fit into the systemic change. Let's uh, finish the show and tell you something you do not know. Uh, Catherine Hamilton, what's your story this week? Yeah, so remember how we had Bob Inglis on, former congressman, Republican from South Carolina, and we talked about a carbon tax. Um, and he had been, he's been kind of shopping this around uh, well. There is a bill now that Senators Sheldon Whitehouse, who's a Democrat from Rhode Island, and Brian Schatz, a Democrat from Hawaii, have introduced. And the venue that they used to introduce it was at the American Enterprise Institute, which is a very, uh, they call it a center right, but I would call it a pretty hard right think tank that's very <laughs> based on free markets. And it's pretty cool that someone's got a carbon tax out there because um, it, we're starting to talk about this again. Um, and, and, you know, EPA is going to come out with their final rule this summer, but uh, this is starting to bubble up again. And it's pretty exciting. Yeah. When I talked to Conservative groups like, you know, you talk to like Eli Lehrer of the R, of the R Street Institute. Um, you talk to people like Grover Norquist of Americans for Tax Reform. Like there, Eli is supportive of a carbon tax and 
someone like Grover Norquist, who doesn't want to see an increase in taxes, would consider a carbon tax if it were offset by a reduction in taxes elsewhere. So there are certainly a lot of conservatives here in Washington who behind the scenes are becoming more supportive of this. Yeah, and that's what that's how this bill would work is that it would it would lower the corporate income tax rate. Right. And so it would it would it would appease those folks. Jigger, what do you got? So I have two things. One is that so EIA put out its forecast of what of how many renewables they they thought would come out um under the uh clean power plan, which was ginormous. And you know, so I'm wondering whether EIA will use that work that they've done as a way to actually, inc- you know, bring it back to their annual energy outlook. Because by definition, what EIA is saying right now is that if the clean power plan doesn't happen, then none of the renewables will happen, which I don't think that they really think. But, you know, my complaints about the EIA. That's um, interesting. I'm speaking at their conference on Monday, so I'll let you know what they say. Exactly. And then this, the second thing is, I don't know if you guys saw this, but there was this ridiculously stupid announcement made by Ernie Moniz and DOE at, uh, with EEI on electric transportation, where they basically said that they're going to do this formal partnership with 70 utilities committed to invest at least 5% of their annual fleet budgets into plug-in vehicles and technologies. So literally, the the electric utility companies who should benefit the most from electric vehicles are are doing almost nothing. So they're going to get like 800 new plug-in vehicles total when we're we already have 300,000 electric vehicles in the United States. I didn't see hmm. that. I mean, it's literally the biggest laughing stock. And Michael Greenwald just did this extraordinary piece on how, you know, they basically can't see the forest from the trees. So mine is actually unrelated to energy. Um, I normally go to bed at a reasonable hour, but I've been staying up late in recent weeks working on a new podcast after hours, one that is not energy related. Um, Since the show doesn't conflict with this one in any way, I I wanted to mention it here. Um, I'm producing this show called Postscript, and I'm billing it as an addendum to the news. And each episode, I'll look at people, news events, technologies, pop culture memes, companies, really anything that was once at the top of the news cycle or captured our imaginations. And I'll revisit those stories through interviews and narration and provide updates. It's kind of like a where are they now for the news. Um, In the first episode I just released last night, I'm looking at what caused the downfall of BlackBerry. Fascinating tale. Um, And then in the following show, I'll be looking at the impact of the stimulus on post-recovery America. And speaking of Michael Grunewald, he will be on that show. Um, So I'm starting from scratch. If the concept seems compelling to you or if you listen to it, check it out on iTunes. Again, it's called Postscript. And, of course, this doesn't conflict with the energy gang. This is a huge part of who I am. I just have some other broader news interests that I've been looking to explore for a while. So... Um, that's the end of the show, folks. All our episodes for the Energy Gang are on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or on our website, greentechmedia.com slash podcast for you to explore. You can find links to the stories and reports we discussed on the show at our podcast page at GTM. To send comments, questions, or concerns, email us at podcasts at greentechmedia.com. Huge thanks to Renesola for sponsoring the show. We, of course, appreciate their support. And thanks to all the listeners for making this show possible. Catherine, thank you. Have an awesome week. I will. Uh, my goal is to, with my husband, who's really been doing all the work, to keep the puppy uh, doing her business outside. <laughs> Jigger, 
hopefully all your business gets done outside as well. Have a good week. <laughs> I will be doing much business outside. <laughs> With Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of GreenTechMedia.com. We'll catch you next week. Thank you.